turn with me over to John chapter 21. John 21, we'll read verses 15 through 17 together. John 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him, The third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your glorious word and I ask that today you would instruct us by it. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and grow us, conform us more into the image of Jesus. Remind us of your marvelous grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We be encouraged as your people this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the disciples are still in shock and awe over the miraculous catch of fish that Jesus provided for them after a long and hard night of catching nothing. They're finishing up a scrumptious breakfast on the beach with Jesus, the resurrected Lord. And it's now that the Lord turns his attention to Peter in particular. Now remember... As soon as John recognized the fingerprints of Jesus, right, when they catch this huge haul of fish, he says to Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter instantly throws his jacket on while he's still out in the boat, throws himself into the sea and swims ashore. But it's not until after the fish have been hauled in, they've been counted, all 153 of them, and they've eaten together, that we now hear of a wondrous interaction between Jesus and Peter. And all of this with an audience of other disciples watching and listening in. This is not the first time that Peter has been granted an audience with Jesus after his resurrection. We're told in Luke 24, 34, that Jesus appeared to Cephas, or Peter, individually. We also know that Peter was present when Jesus appeared to the ten disciples, and then present the following week when Thomas was added to that number as well. We also can remember the particular grace and mercy and compassion of Jesus that when the angels tell the ladies at the empty tomb that Jesus is risen, they say, go tell the disciples and Peter. Peter's name is specifically mentioned by the angel. Certainly because at that point, I wonder what Peter was feeling and thinking in the aftermath of having denied Jesus three times. We see Jesus' tremendous compassion towards Peter. And now Jesus, on this occasion, gives Peter the opportunity to reverse those lamentable three denials with three restorative affirmations. 
He takes those three lamentable denials, and now he's going to turn them around and give Peter the opportunity to make three restorative affirmations. This dialogue happens with witnesses. I'm sure that this is because Jesus knew that this would aid even the other disciples in their interactions with this having fallen, having denied disciple Peter. This is a significant event to help others in their consideration of Peter's reinstatement and blessing by Jesus himself to be an under-shepherd, one who cares for the flock of God. Jesus forgives Peter. He reinstates Peter here in in his place among the other disciples. And then he reminds Peter of what his task will be to encourage and nurture other followers of Jesus. But I believe that this account also is near and dear to all of our hearts for a personal reason. I believe that Peter is representative of all of us. We have all had some moments in which we sadly too must admit that we have denied Jesus. Even if not with some specific verbal denial, perhaps with denials of affection by not obeying the Lord as we ought. Perhaps denials of action or decision. Peter's sinfulness is perhaps nowhere more evident and plain than, and prominent than in those three denials that he made of Jesus. But in our passage this morning, we see how Jesus works to forgive and to restore broken, humbled people. And how he puts them into service. In fact, Peter has to be humbled before he's ready to serve. His pride has to first be broken, that the Lord then might rise him up. And it's wonderful that our Lord delights to do this. He delights to restore the broken. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. The Lord will bring justice. The Lord will righteously reign. But he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In a sermon entitled, God's Work of Restoration... I want to note God's work of restoration in two steps. How does God work to restore? Well, first of all, he humbles the arrogant. And then second of all, we'll see that he gives grace to the humble. He works in humbling the arrogant. And then he works in gracing the humble. Let's look at that first point together. Humbling the arrogant. And it begins with Jesus' own knowledge of Peter's sin. Jesus had told his disciples that they would soon scatter and leave him to face the trials that were ahead of him. This is before he was crucified. He says, on this very night, you're going to depart and leave me, desert me. Peter says, no way, not me. And Jesus says to Peter, this very night, you'll deny me three times. Jesus knew of Satan's plot with Peter. Jesus even indicated that he had prayed for Peter regarding this. ...that Peter's faith would not fail. We read this in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Why do I remind us of this statement from Jesus? Well... I think it's important that we be reminded that Peter's failure was no surprise to Jesus. 
Peter's failure was not a surprise to Jesus. And this is good news for us as well. No, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, your sin is not a surprise to our Savior. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. Everything is laid bare before him. You know, when we hear of someone engaging in some particular sin, or let's say it's some particularly public sin, or some heinous fall from some position of you know, prominence, or some pedestal that people have put people upon, and we hear of sin impacting their life and affecting their life, we often find ourselves in shock and awe over that. We're surprised when we hear of those stories. But the Lord is never surprised. He knows our hearts. He knows our intentions. He knows our motivations. He knows our actions even before they happen. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. While I was in my mother's womb... You had already written all of my days before I had even had one of them, the psalmist says. Jesus knew Peter's sin. Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart, and he knew what what Peter would do. But this becomes an occasion in which Peter's haughtiness is displayed. His arrogance, his pride gets put out here on full display. When he's foretold of this coming desertion, Peter adamantly denies it, Luke 22. He said to him, Lord, with you I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. But Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. Matthew 26, 33 and 35, Peter says it this way, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if everyone else deserts you, Jesus, I won't. Jesus again replies to him, truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same as well. We're reminded of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goeth before destruction. You've got to read that one in the King James. Pride goeth or proceedeth before destruction. A haughty spirit before stumbling. His pride and arrogance is highlighted as then we come to the events of that evening. I want to do a quick recap of what happened with Peter's denials so we could consider his sin and sorrow for a few moments. It's recorded if you want to read these on your own. Again, John 18 records it, Matthew 26, and Luke 22. John 18, Matthew 26, and Luke 22. But I'm just going to provide a quick summary of those events. So, Jesus is arrested. And Peter comes to the high priest's courtyard. He can't get in on his own credentials, but John, who's already in, gets Peter in. And Peter finds himself warming himself by a charcoal fire. Interesting, John points this out. A fire of charcoal. We'll hold on to that. And he's attempting, I'm sure, on some level to blend into his surroundings. There's a servant girl who, in the light of the fire, takes a closer look at Peter. And something about Peter marks him as a follower of Jesus. There's something about him, whether it's the way he looks or the fact that he hadn't been in the courtyard before or something about his body language. But this little servant girl 
asked Peter if he's one of Jesus' disciples. Now, the accusation couldn't come from a more benign source, especially considering that culture. This wasn't a man asking the question. It was a woman. It wasn't a mature woman. It was a little girl. It wasn't a free girl. It was a slave. Here we have the interrogator is a little slave girl. A little servant girl asks Peter. Now remember, what did Peter just told Jesus? Everybody denies you. I will not. I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to prison for you. This is no menacing interrogator. This is not someone about to put him on the waterboard, right? This is a little slave girl asking a question. And in fact, in some of the gospel accounts, the question is asked with the negative implied. You aren't one of his, are you? Are you one of him? You're not one of them also, are you? Peter acts befuddled by the identification. Uh, who, me? I have no idea what you're talking about. He craftily evades her question by shrugging it off as crazy talk. He treats the little girl as if she's foolish. Who, me? What are you saying? Just to be clear, this is a denial. Peter's lying. It's a form of lying that we're all prone to use because it's hard to disprove. This is when someone knows what they did, but in the, in the interrogation you go, I don't know. I don't remember. We get a few of those here at our school at times. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't, it's not I didn't do it. I don't remember. It's, it's clever ways of not evading the truth. It's a form of denial. Perhaps he justified it. Why incriminate myself to this little servant girl? What good would that do? It could only mean trouble. Peter gets up and he moves away from the fire, firelight into the shadows. <laughs> He's been recognized, so now we see Peter cowering over in the shadows. Where is this bold Peter now? Where is that one who's ready to go to prison or die for Jesus? Well, it's not long before Peter is asked again about his relationship with Jesus. The slave girl's words have induced discussion by other slave girls, as well as at least one man who puts a question to Peter. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. You also are one of them. And here Peter again denies it. We see the destructive wake of lying. Once lying is begun, it's hard to reverse course. In fact, impossible apart from repentance. The lies just stack on to one another... Before he was able to lie by evasion, but here he can't. And so now it's just flat denial. No. Man, I do not know him. The denial is emphatic here. Matthew says that Peter even denied it with an oath. He's perjuring himself. I swear, I promise that I don't know him. Over an hour passes before the third and final denial. It appears over the intervening hour that Peter, oh, good old Peter, can't keep his mouth shut. A common problem for him and me. Um, and so here he is, and he's speaking during this intervening hour because we hear others saying, it's evident that this man is not from these parts. He's a Galilean. He's a northerner. Every once in a while, my northern accent still shows up, even though I've been in Texas for like 20 years now or something like that. Still, those early formative years, every once in a while, show up in my 
accenting. They're able to recognize he wasn't from those parts. He's a Galilean. Yet Peter denies it again. This time he combines his denial with curses and oaths. He gives his most venomous denial by adding to it oaths to God. And or curses either on Jesus or on himself. The Greek word there um, means to anathematize or to call down upon oneself judgment. It's possible that Peter is calling a curse upon himself if he's lying. Like, let me go to hell if I'm saying it's not true. That kind of strong, forceful swearing. Or it's also possible that he was even cursing Christ as a means to prove that he wasn't one of Jesus' followers. We don't know for certain. But as Jesus is being unjustly tried and condemned, insulted and ridiculed, here is Peter swearing up and down that he doesn't know Jesus at all and he has no relationship with that man. And as his words are still echoing through the courtyard, immediately a rooster crows. Luke tells us also that we don't know the circumstances exactly. How close was was he to Jesus? Was Jesus in the middle of being transported in one of those trips between different rulers? But we're told by Luke that at that same moment as the rooster crows, they lock eyes with one another. Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter looks into Jesus' eyes. Jesus is receiving horrid treatment. He's listening to countless false accusations. He's enduring mockery, insults, and abuses. Yet in the middle of it all, when the rooster crows, Jesus' attention is on Peter. And they lock eyes with one another. Peter instantly remembers what Jesus had told him about this very night. And we're told that Peter goes out, falls to the ground, and weeps bitterly. Jesus' look, the remembrance of Jesus' words, pierced to the depths of Peter's soul. Gone now was that arrogance. Gone now was that pride. But J.C. Ryle cautions us all. There is no enormity of sin into which we may not run if we do not watch and pray. And if the grace of God does not hold us up. When we read of the fall of Peter... We only read what might possibly befall any of ourselves. Let us never presume. Let us never indulge in high thoughts about our own strength. See, the glorious news is that while Peter may have denied Jesus, Jesus had not abandoned Peter. Even this cold and dark night would be followed by a brand new day. The Jesus whom Peter denied, is the Savior who for Peter died. Jesus had not only predicted Peter's denial, but if you remember, if you look at it, I prayed for you, and after you have turned, after you fall, after you've turned, that you will strengthen your brothers. He not only predicted Peter's denial, his sifting by Satan, but also his restoration. He had prayed for Peter that after having fallen, that he would be restored and be an encouragement and a support to his brothers. When Peter now recognizes his sin, he goes from boasting to weeping. He goes from boasting to weeping. But now, as we'll see in a moment, when Peter experiences forgiveness, he'll go from grieving to feeding. Point number two, gracing the humble. 
gracing the humble. We saw Peter's arrogance displayed, but now we see Peter's humility displayed. Jesus prepares a charcoal fire. Interesting that that's pointed out by John in such an emphatic way. Anyone who's ever grilled out on a grill with charcoal knows the distinctive smell of charcoal, right? It usually flavors your clothing for the rest of the day, right? That charcoal smell goes everywhere. Peter knew that smell. It was the very place where he had denied Jesus. And now Jesus prepares a charcoal fire on the beach. And this becomes now the place of restoration for Peter. And he writes as this, There is a part of the human brain which seems to be closed off for much of the time, but which can be reached at once through the sense of smell. You ever had this happen to you? Smell of a particular place, perhaps. There's a log cabin we've gone up for many, many years up in Presque Isle, and there's just something about the smell of outside. I, I know I'm in Presque Isle by the smell of the air outside. Sometimes there are pleasant smells like that. I also remember the, the not-so-pleasant smell of country air out in pawpaw after fields are fertilized. You know, we, we, those smells come back to us, right? And they remind us of times when we were in that place. It's fascinating that Jesus would set up the same smell for Peter's reinstatement. The memory of that sad night is now going to be replaced with a whole new memory. A memory of this glorious morning. Jesus asks Peter his first question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's solemnity to this moment. Jesus does not use Peter... His name, Peter, the name that Jesus gave to Peter. He uses his birth name, Simon. And he gives the full name, son of John. This is like a mother saying, you know, my mom, Jess William. You know, <laughs> and the middle name comes out. Then all of a sudden, okay, now it's business, right? There's a solemnity to this. Simon, son of John. You feel the official nature of what Jesus is doing here. And then he asks, do you love me? A very searching question. Ryle comments, we we may know much and do much and talk much and work much and give much and go through much and make much show in our religion and yet be dead before God if we not have love. Do we love Jesus? That's the great question. Without this, there's no vitality about our Christianity. We're no better than painted wax figures, lifeless stuffed beasts in a museum, sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. There is no life where there is no love. Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That phrase, more than these, unique to the first question, not found in the second or third question, has caused some amount of discussion as to what is the more than these a reference to. Whenever you have a word like these, it's a pronoun, and you wonder what the antecedent is. What is the these pointing back to? And there's a couple of different options. One of them could be that Jesus is asking Peter if he loves Jesus more than these fishing boats and these fish. In other words, do you love me more than your occupation, than this course of life? The course of life that I found you in when I first called you, that I'm not finding you back in right now. What do you love? What are you going to pursue? Do you want, what do you want your life to be spent toward? This? Do you love me more than this? That would be a way it could be taken. 
Another way it could be taken is that Jesus could be asking Peter if, if Peter loves Jesus more than Peter loves these friends of his, those whom he's with there. He had denied Jesus, but here he is found with the disciples. Is he asking him, where does your supreme affection lie? Is he asking, does your love for me exceed your love for these friends of yours? Remember, several of these men Peter knew before being called by Jesus. These were friends of his. Remember, Jesus called several of them all at once out on their boats. But I believe that the main thrust of the question is neither of those two, however they would be implied by the rest. But I think the main thrust of his question is regarding the quality of Peter's love for Jesus in comparison with the love for Jesus that the other disciples had. In other words, Peter, do you love me more than the way that these love me? Do you love me more than how they love me? Now, this seems kind of like a presumptuous question, right? Like, how could Peter know the quality of his love compared to the love of the others? Sounds strange. That is until we remember the very problem that Peter was in. What did he say to Jesus in his arrogance and in his boast? Even if everyone else falls away, I will not. To make a claim about his love. My love is greater than their love. I will not desert you. They might, but I won't. Jesus' question. Peter, do you love me more than these? Even if all fall away, I will not, Lord. That's what Peter boasted. The disciples get up caught up in competitions with one another throughout Jesus' earthly ministry regarding their relative love for Jesus, their commitment to him, who's going to be rewarded what, who's going to sit on which side of Jesus, all the rest. We see that happening. And however willing Peter's spirit was, as we've already remembered, his flesh was weak. The only one that could even be said to have stood by Jesus' side through it all was John. Remember, he's the one that's still there at the cross and Jesus even commits Mary to John's care, right? So now humbled by his falling, in response, Peter does not reference the others. Do you see that? He makes no reference to the more than these. No no statement about that at all. He doesn't boast in his own ability. He merely affirms what he knows Jesus already knows. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Kostenberger said, perhaps at long last Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength. Perhaps he's realized the hollowness of affirming his own loyalty in a way that relies more on his own power or will than on Jesus' enablement or empowerment. Just as Jesus knew, though, Peter's sin, we see that Jesus had knowledge of Peter's love. Remember, Peter resists Jesus' knowledge of Peter's sin. Jesus says, you'll deny me. You'll desert me. No, Lord. Uh-uh. That's not going to happen. He's resisting Jesus' knowledge of his, own, of his sin. But now, Peter, humbled and broken, he rests in Jesus' knowledge of him. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. Peter's fall was used by the Lord to show his confidence in himself was misplaced. It humbled Peter's arrogance and his pride. 
Peter had not long before not only trusted in his own loyalty and steadfastness, but his own superiority to the other disciples. Certainly when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, Peter is transported to that boast, that empty boast. Peter answers, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. There's been a lot of discussion on this text. One of the reasons for it is something that comes out in the Greek that is not apparent in the English. There are some words that are all translated by the word love here. But there are two Greek words that are being utilized. And there's been lots of discussion about it. And I just want to share a few thoughts about that situation. The uh, two words that are present here is one is agape, which probably most of you have heard that word before. And the other one is phileo. Um, And so there's been discussion about these two words. What's interesting is that Jesus asks Peter the first time, do you agape me? He uses the word agape and... Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Next question, Peter, do you love me, agape me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Third time, Jesus asks, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. The first two questions from Jesus come with the word agape. The third one with the word phileo. Peter responds all three times with the word phileo. This is called question, discussion. What's the reason for it? I will say that recent scholarship has not been persuaded that the two words used for love in this passage, agape and phileo, should be interpreted to have any significant difference in meaning at all. The reasons for this, we can get into a longer discussion, but I'll just state it quickly. Some of the main reasons are the words are often used interchangeably in other contexts. It's not like as if the word agape is only used when talking about loving God. And then phileo is only used for like loving people or something like that. Phileo is used in reference to loving God. Agape is used in loving God. Agape is used in loving parents. Phileo is used in loving parents. So the words are interchangeably used in various contexts, which has caused some to say as a result, if the words are somewhat interchangeable, then I don't think that there should be any discernible difference seen in the words here. So then, but the question still remains, why are the words there different? And one of the big reasons that uh, recent scholars will put forward is that it's just a stylistic reason. It, the words are roughly synonymous. It's just a stylistic reason that the words are different. In other words, variation. The desire for variation in the recounting of the events. The King James Version of the Bible is a really good example of this, if you do a comparison of like a text in the King James and a text in the NAS or the ESV, you'll find that often what the King James does is even if it's in, uh, translating the same Greek word repeatedly in the context, it will use synonyms instead. Why? Because it's more beautiful. That's why. It, it, you don't have the repetition, it just sounds more beautiful. For example, one of the examples that came to my mind is the word clothing in Greek, you can translate clothing, the NAS in a text where clothing happens repeatedly will keep saying clothing, 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 clothing. Or you know, whatever word they end up using for it. But the King James will say clothing. And then the next one's raiment. And then the next one is attire. And the next one's apparel. So the question here is, and this is the reason why if you're doing in-depth Bible study, you're doing word study, Bible study, it's not a great place to go as often with the King James. Because typically, 
there's a little bit of that stylistic variation. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. But, but you don't, it doesn't, the, the passage doesn't just come popping off the page at you like, man, the word clothing happened five times there. Because you could maybe overlook that because there's different words being used whenever the Greek word is being translated. Um, so some would argue that the difference in phileo and agape here are just a matter of stylistic reason. And they would say that translating this as most modern Bibles have, love, 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 is appropriate and the best way to translate. Certainly there is range of overlap between these words. But I personally still have a hard time utterly reducing the differences, especially in this context. I would argue that there is some distinction between the two words, even though there's a lot of similarity between the two. And a good example perhaps comes from Peter himself. In 2 Peter 1... Verses 5 through 7, in, there's a list of things that are supposed to add, you know, in your faith supply moral excellence, moral excellence, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, listen to this, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Interesting. So he's got a list of things that are like adding to one another or working towards one another. And the last two in the, in the phrase there uses... The root from phileo, that love, for the brotherly kindness. You have the word edelphos also, which means brother. So you have brotherly love. And then you have agape as the last word. So here we have Peter himself using both words, and at least with some sort of distinction. However, he has obviously added the suffix that in this case is translated as a prefix, brotherly. Now, the word for brotherly kindness... Um, Again, that brotherly element could make some distinction here. However, my argument is that while the words have a lot of overlap of meaning, there's still some difference. And historically speaking, Christians not in modernity have for a long time argued for differences between the two words. Typically what you've seen is that the word agape has typically been given a higher or purer, purer form of love definition, being defined as love that originates in the will Selfless love that responds to the need of the one being loved, apart from any necessary involvement of the emotions. Phileo being defined as love arising in the emotions and responding to that which is attractive or pleasing, or that which brings satisfaction to the one loving. These are some of the attempted definitions that people have made. The idea of the interpretation is this, that Peter is admitting his inability to love Jesus the way that Jesus is calling him to, if this is the way we understand it. Jesus says, do you love me? And that word agape, do you selflessly love me? Do you love me with everything? And it is possible here that Peter substitutes a lesser word. For he's not able to speak of loyal, unfailing love in the wake of his obvious denials. But that what he has, he wants to give wholeheartedly and freely. And so when Jesus asks him, do you love me? Do you agape me? He says, you know, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. When Jesus asks the third time, it's interesting. Look at what it says in verse 17. Peter was grieved. So in verse 17, sorry, back up. He said to him, third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And that love there is phileo. So now Jesus has taken on the word that Peter has used in the first two responses. Then we have this statement. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And that phrase there, phileo me. 
Now, there's two ways this can be understood. One, some people just say, well, his grief is just because we got to the third time. And the third time definitely brings back to Peter's memory his threefold denial. That's definitely true, for sure. That's absolutely there. Everyone would agree with that. The further question, though, is why does it, why does it say, not just say, he, t- he asked him the third time. It says, this, he asked him the third time, do you phileo me? Is it possible that Peter is partially grieved, not because of only the third time, because now, but because now Jesus has even taken Peter's lesser word and said, do you even that? Do you even that? Hendrickson provides a modern-day example in which he plays off of a couple of other words to try to give the feel of the text, because we don't have the word agape or phileo in our English language. We use the word love. So he, he plays off of the word knowing something, knowing someone or being acquainted with someone and plays through the same scenario. This is how it would sound. So the question comes to an employee who's recommending someone for a job, and, he, and the, the boss says, you've recommended this person, but do you actually know him? And the employee says, yes, I'm acquainted with him. To which the boss says, do you know him? To which the employee says, yes, I'm acquainted with him. To which then the boss says, are you acquainted with him? To which the man, now, now this employee frowns the third time. He's, are you acquainted with him? You know well enough to realize that I'm really acquainted with him. Interesting example is trying to answer the reason why is Peter grieved the way he is. In this case, it's because even the word that's being used is being called into question. Being examined. Some, however, have even translated the words in the reverse fashion, saying that the word phileo, because it has more of, usually the only thing that's in distinction between phileo and agape is phileo is the only word that's used whenever, like, kissing is involved. So that kind of affection like that. That's why a lot of people have said phileo has more of this emotional flavor to it. So there have been some scholars who have even gone the reverse way and said that Peter's asking a question like, are you devoted to me? And Peter replies, Devoted, I love you. I, I have warm affections for you. In other words, I not only am committed to you, but I, I feel it. It's an expression of my heart and soul. I, my emotions are up in this as well. Regardless, after every question that Jesus asks, Peter does say yes. Right? Do you got by me? Yes, Lord. Which I think is one of the strongest arguments for those modern interpreters who say we shouldn't see much distinction at all. Because he's like, he says yes anyway. <laughs> you got it. Yes, Lord. I phileo you. In other words, if he had said, no, Lord, I phileo you, then that would really stand out. No, I don't agape you. I phileo you instead. You know? So anyway, the question continues. I don't have any um, adamant uh, decision for you necessarily. However, to say... I lean towards seeing a difference between the two words. I think it's more than just a stylistic difference. And ultimately, we can ask Jesus about it in heaven one day. Jesus has now asked Peter, though, three times, which again was sure to remind him of his threefold denial. And Peter is grieved. But again, notice that Peter does nothing more than Appeal to Christ as the one who knows all and knows everything. Jesus knew the depth of things, not merely their surface. We see such a difference in Peter here. Just consider the difference between this and his bravado at the very beginning and before this all happened, right? I'll never desert you. I'll never deny you. 
I, 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 what I'm able to do. Here, you know, Lord. You know, Lord. You know all things, Lord. You know, you perceive, you know this. I even like that phrase, you know all things. Peter, who knows all things but God alone, right? Appeal to Jesus' deity. You know all things. Certainly you know this subset of things. You know this thing. You know what's in my heart. It's like as if Peter even distrusts his own heart in understanding. He completely falls upon what Jesus knows about him. Search my heart, Lord. You know that I love you. Now that this strong man is broken down and shown his utter weakness, that now he's ready and prepared to be commissioned by Jesus to strengthen his brethren. It's through this process that now Peter who is the strong, self-confident man, has been stripped of that and now invested with the confidence that only comes from Jesus that now he's able to strengthen his brothers. After the threefold denial and the threefold affirmation, Jesus gives a threefold commission. And we see this in Peter's forgiveness and service. Jesus gives Peter a command after each of these exchanges. He says, feed my lambs, the first one. The second one, shepherd my sheep. The third one, feed my sheep. It's interesting, the third is really a combination of a bit from the first and a bit from the second. He takes feed from the first, who feed my lambs. He takes feed from that. And he takes shepherd my sheep. He takes a sheep from that and says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter is being reinstated in the presence of witnesses to care for and watch over Christ's sheep. Feeding and caring for Jesus' sheep would involve watching over them, protecting them from enemies, nourishing them with the truth of God's word, correcting them should they fall into false doctrine, rebuking them should they engage in ungodliness, encourage them when they become discouraged, equipping them for the task before them, searching them out should they get lost, providing for them when in need. It's been mentioned, Jesus has already told Peter he's going to make him a fisher of men. Now he tells him you're going to be a shepherd of lambs. You're going to shepherd sheep. F.F. Bruce said, adding to the evangelist hook is the pastor's crook. So that Peter proceeded to fulfill his double commission by hook and by crook. Peter himself exhorts fellow elders with the same task. Shepherd the flock of God. He uses that same word. 1 Peter chapter 5. He's exhorting fellow elders. By the way, quick side note. Roman Catholics who try to make this into some big calling of Peter into the Pope. As the first Pope. They usually combine this with his his, uh, earlier discussion with Jesus. Where Jesus says, you know, upon this rock I will build my church. And they'll say that Peter is the rock. Whereas we would say, no, it was Peter's confession that is the rock upon which Jesus built his church. But... Having said all of that, there have been some that have pointed this text to say, look, Peter's given prominence, but that's not at all the gist of the text. The text is saying he's being reinstated among his brothers to strengthen and encourage them. And even Peter himself recognized that about himself in 1 Peter 5 when he says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, not as your chief elder, not as your shepherd, your overseer over all things. He's a fellow elder. And then he tells them to do the very thing that Jesus told him to do. Verse 2 in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Shepherd the flock of God. 
shepherd the flock of God. Notice, Jesus says to Peter, um, to, to, to feed my sheep. Whose sheep are they? Jesus' sheep, right? And then Peter, when he tells these fellow elders, he says, shepherd the flock of God. They're God's flock. They're not yours. Not the pastor's flock. It's God's flock. It's Jesus' sheep, not Peter's sheep. Because ultimately, we're all his. And I find interesting that the great work that is given to Peter is to feed lambs and to tend sheep. Does that sound like a king's commission? (laughs) Now I give you your great task. Watch the sheep. You know? It's like, hey, I've now now become a grown man. Now I can walk the dog by myself. You know, now I can feed the dog. Wow. Thank you. You know, it, it it sounds lowly, doesn't it? It sounds lowly. Bryn Duncan recommended a book to me this past week. I was able to grab it called Ordinary, and uh, picked up on a providential connection between that book recommendation and today's sermon. The author of the book says this, The kingdom of God isn't coming with light shows and shock and awe, but with lowly acts of service. I want to push back against sensationalism and rock star Christianity and help people understand that they can make a powerful impact by practicing ordinary Christianity. We need Christians focused on ordinary Christianity, speaking up for the voiceless, caring for the single mom, restoring the broken, bearing burdens, welcoming the functionally fatherless, and speaking the good news to people on a regular basis in order to change their world. The task is given to Peter is to shepherd sheep, to feed lambs. Us ordinary people given supernatural provision to perform ordinary tasks, which will turn the world upside down. Much of the work of ministry is small acts of love and kindness done in Jesus' name. It's caring for the widow and orphan. It's providing for the poor. It's defending the unborn. It's practicing hospitality to those in the church and strangers. It's loving our neighbor. It's doing all of this for the glory of God. It's not fireworks and smoke and... Laser shows. And it's interesting that the one quality that, you know, if you're going to say, what's your qualification for this task? You know, if I'm going to, I'm about to go into this next week and round of interviews for, for jobs at the school. And so we sit and ask these questions. And one of the things I'm, I'm trying to prayerfully consider is, is this person qualified for the task I'm about to hire them for? I'm about to entrust something to them. Are they qualified to do the thing I'm asking them to do? And it's not just found in degrees. We all know people have degrees and it means nothing, you know? Is this person qualified for the task before them? And so it's interesting to me. The task that's given is feeding sheep, taking care of lambs. And what is the qualification? The only question Jesus asked Peter is, do you love me? The one quality needful to fulfill this work of service is love for Jesus. What motivates all true godliness and all Christian service? Love for Christ. Leighton says, love is the great endowment of a true pastor of Christ's flock. He says not to Peter, are you wise? Are you learned? Are you eloquent? He asks, do you love me? If you love me, then feed. Love to Christ begets love to people's souls. 
Because those souls are precious to Jesus, and he cares about them. Since Peter loved Jesus, he would care for Jesus' sheep. If he doesn't love Jesus, then he won't show any care for Jesus' sheep. This is why 1 John will say things like, if you don't love the brethren, you can't say you love God. If you love Jesus, you will love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves his bride, the church. Yeah, the, his bride, the church, is filled with messed up people. Praise the Lord, otherwise there would be no place for me here in, among God's people, right? He loves messed up people. So we're called, as he loves messed up people, to love messed up people. What a difference between the shepherd and the hired hand. Remember Jesus makes that illustration in John 10? The hired hand, when tough gets tough, he just, he's running. He's out of there. You know? The shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. He loves them. Well, whatever mistakes Peter had made, they're forgiven. Whatever Peter had done wrong, they're now paid for by Jesus and cleansed and washed clean. And I believe that the reason why Peter is uniquely then suited to strengthen the brethren is because he has received forgiveness. Those who've received forgiveness and know what they've been forgiven of are the best ones to proclaim that forgiveness to others. People who think they need no forgiveness are horrible ambassadors for forgiveness. But those who know just the depth of their sin, they've had it exposed, Jesus has drawn it out, and Jesus has paid for it, then there's a longing in our heart that others would experience this grace beyond grace. That's why Jesus can say in Luke 7, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which her many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. At Jesus' response to Peter, we see that those who love Jesus are called then to work for him. Particularly, disciples of Jesus, out of love for Christ, work hard to care for those for whom Jesus died. Love the way that A.W. Pink says it. We don't see the specific words from Jesus. He doesn't say, I forgive you. He just says, feed my sheep. Do you love me? You're maybe expecting him to say, I forgive you, Peter. Like, it's, it's, it's all good, buddy. You know, he, he didn't say that. He just says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, shepherd my, my, my flock. A.W. Pink says, There's nothing in all this world nearer the heart of Christ than those for whom he shed his precious blood. And therefore, he could not give to Peter a more affecting proof of his confidence than by committing to his care the dearest objects of his wondrous love. Can I just back this up out of his beautiful language and just illustrate it this way? If... There's some big division between me and someone else. And they've made things right. And whether or not I've said, I forgive you. If I then say, here's my son, Joel. Take care of him for me. What do you think I feel towards this person? Is there any way I'm putting my precious son in their hands if we're not made right? Jesus is saying, it's good, Peter. Take care of my sheep, those ones whom I love. Such a vivid illustration of how Jesus repairs the broken, and then he uses them in service. He gives them the privilege of serving him. You see, ultimately the reason why Peter can be forgiven and commissioned is because Jesus died for all of the sheep, and one of those was Peter. 
Peter died for the very sins that, I'm sorry, Jesus died for the very sins that Peter was committing that night of his, his denials. It's so fantastic how Jesus' forgiveness then also takes on this equipment for action. He's, Peter's now commissioned to serve. And so it is for all of us who are blood-bought, redeemed sinners. We're not only forgiven, but we're placed into service. The threefold repetition of Jesus' questions is sure to bring out the fullness of Peter's memory of his sin. But then the threefold commission which Jesus gave also testified to the complete and utter forgiveness that was extended. You could say it this way. Peter's repentance became as well known as his sin. And God's forgiveness washed him clean. This is how it goes. Dear friends, hide your sin and you'll ultimately feel the full weight of sin's consequence. Because one day it will be brought out. The books will be brought out and judgment will fall. But instead allow the Lord to bring your sin out into the open and Jesus can provide full cleansing. His grace is sufficient for all of your sins. A couple of months ago, I put off dealing with a tooth until the toothache became unbearable. When the pain became too great, I decided that the dentist was actually my friend, enlisted to help me. Yes, there would be some discomfort in the dentist's chair, but the result would be something amazing. In this particular case, it involved a root canal and a crown, and my mouth is left with the distinctive marks and skill of that dentist. But the rotten and decaying tooth is gone, and the pain is gone. And so it is, yet to an even better extent, with Jesus. You can continue to try to cover up your sin, but it only gnaw at you like a toothache. You can continue to push down the guilt you feel, but it will continue to afflict you. You can continue to make excuses. You can continue to blame others. But your own conscience bears witness against you. You are a sinner. And you've transgressed against the holy God. Psalm 38 describes what goes on inside of a man's soul when he is unrepentant of sin. Listen to this language. There is no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. My loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. You know... You know that the problem is not outside of you. It's not ultimately an issue of your environment. It is you and your own hearts. You can't look inside of yourself without seeing more of your sin. You can't fix it yourself because you're damaged. You can't look to anyone else because they're ultimately sinners too. In fact, you have only one hope. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. There is only one Savior, God's Son, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. All other roads lead to death and destruction. All other attempts are futile. But in Jesus, there is blessed forgiveness. In Jesus, there's life. And if you will run to him in all of your sin and allow him to open up your sin-ridden heart and ask him to search you and to try you and to ask him to forgive you, not because you deserve it, because you don't, 
but because he delights to show grace and mercy to unworthy sinners, he will save you. He will forgive you. Psalm 32 describes a wondrous picture of the blessing of forgiveness. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity to, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I shall confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah! Therefore, I don't know what salah means, but it's appropriate there. Salah! Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time that you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. The good news is that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And once saved, you can now live for the purpose that you were created for, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see, we love him. Only, the only reason Peter can even say, you know that I love you, is because Jesus first loved Peter. We love him because he first loved us and gave his son for us. And from that love, we, like Peter, can now care for others, telling them the good news of the gospel and helping them to apply it to everyday living. Ordinary living imbued with supernatural power, all to the glory of God. And just to be clear, service is not a Christian's attempt to be forgiven. No amount of service, no amount of penance could ever make up for our sin. Only a perfect sacrifice from one who never sinned could lay down his life in the place of guilty sinners and bear the wrath of God for them granting his righteousness to them. And that's what Jesus did. We're saved by grace alone. We don't serve God to earn forgiveness. We serve God as those grateful for the forgiveness that he has freely given unto us from beginning to end. We're saved utterly by grace alone. Salvation is God's work of restoration. And if God can restore Peter, then there's hope for all of us too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your glorious, mighty, majestic word. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to study together and consider together and ask you to search our hearts. Lord, I pray, I know one of the most prideful things we could do today is to fall into the same sin that Peter did and say, well, I'm not Peter. I wouldn't deny you. Lord, may you Empty us of that pride and arrogance. Would you show us our sin? Would you remind us of your love? Lord, I pray for any in this place who perhaps has lived a life of hiding their sin. That you would expose it. That you would open that up that it might be healed in the, only way, in the way that only you can. Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy and love. Thank you for your care and concern. Definitely by our own experience, we know that we are prone to wander. But Lord, we, we trust in your hand to hold us close. 
and to grant us renewed repentance and forgiveness. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.